Um, I didn't know if I was going to talk about this or not, but I'm going to. Uh, so changing, changing subjects, I, I don't typically respond to critics, and, and I, I don't know that this is a critic thing, but we went through like a rumor deal like a year ago, and then I found that it's kind of coming back again. And, the, and this is what it is, and it might be a topic that you're completely unfamiliar with, and that's okay, but it's, it's Antioch Church is an emergent church. It's kind of the rumor, and it, it went away, and now it's kind of come back, you know. And the emergent church is slang, when it's used that way, it's slang for um, Antioch is a church that, that is a part of a movement that doesn't take the Bible serious, that doesn't have sound theology, that is into the social gospel, and that's another slang thing we don't have time to get into. But, but it's basically a way of just kind of dismissing it out and out as being a bad example of like what church should be. And we've dealt with it before, but I just want to kind of bring it back up just so that you guys, as you move through um, your, your week in this community, can just say, yeah, that's ridiculous. But So here's, here's basically how people think we're an emergent church. And so we'll go back to philosophy and, and give an example of what a bad argument is. And, and classically, the, the kind of way in logic it was worked out, this is a bad argument, doesn't follow from the premises, was involved Socrates. So it's basically this. Pigs have ears. Socrates has ears. Therefore, Socrates is a pig. Okay, Do you guys understand that? That's a logical argument. The premises are true. Pigs have ears. Socrates has ears. The problem is the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise, the premises. Does that make sense? So what, what's, there's a logical fallacy going on there, like kind of a guilt by association idea. Um, so Socrates is kind of hanging out with pigs, and they both have ears, so they just lump them together. But it's not, it doesn't follow. Does that make sense? So here's how the, the thing goes with Antioch. The emergent church is really into um, relevance and really into justice and things like that, and they, they look maybe cooler or, or different or whatever than your traditional church. Antioch is relevant and young and kind of energetic, and they're into justice and whatever. Therefore, Antioch must be an emergent church. Is that, you see how that goes? But the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. Uh, our theology here is so orthodox that it's boring. Like, it's, I tell people that all the time. They ask me about theology. I was like, yeah, we're really boring. There's nothing interesting about our theology. It's as, it's as middle-of-the-road orthodox as you can possibly get. Um, it's boring. Uh, it's, it's as solid and straightforward and traditional and orthodox as you get. We actually believe the Bible. Why else would we come on a snowy day like today? You know, just to hang out? You know, like, we can do that better other places. Uh, so... If you have questions about Antioch's theology, you can talk to one of the elders. You can come talk to me. We have no secrets and no hidden agendas and no anything. And the fact that we care about justice is not driven by a new movement, like emergent church movement, because it's cool or fashionable. Um, what drives our, our passion for justice is Isaiah, James, heck, most of the Bible. Um, so, it's, so, so please don't get caught up in, in a bad argument that says just because there's some elements of this that looks like this, therefore it must be the same thing. Um, Socrates is not a pig. Okay? Uh, and and I, I say that just because sometimes I find it's just best to get out in the front of rumors and just ward them off. And, and this one, um, it, it's just 
bugs me, and so maybe if you guys know that we're not. Uh, yeah, there's some good things about the emergent church movement, and some of those elements might look the same. There's some other things that we wouldn't ascribe to, and we're different. And we don't call ourselves that. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, John, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just disregard all of that. That's, I'm in my own world. Um, all right, John, we're, we're going through the book of John. We're in a series on John, and we kind of hit a really interesting little verse here, and we're just going to camp not on the broader paragraph, but just kind of the weight of what Jesus says in this verse. And if you remember, it's the last week of Jesus' life. He's kind of with his disciples. He's now outside of public ministry, and, and his last little bit of, of his life is private ministry. It's with his disciples. It's it's his guys that he's pouring himself into, that he's raising up, that he's trying to teach, that he's loving on. And, and so he's, he's with them, and he's doing everything he can to drive home a point. I mean, everything he can to say, man, I'm not going to be here much longer, because you've got to get this, because I'm passing the baton here. Like, you guys are now going to carry the mantle, the weight of responsibility um, for, for this movement, my movement, what it means to follow me. And so he had just gotten done, like, wrapping a, a, a cloth around his waist and washing his disciples' feet. And he does this, and he says, um, as I do this, you should also do this. It's, it's follow my example. I'm, I'm ahead of you. You're following me. You're under me. So if I do this, it's kind of follow the leader. You got to do it too. You don't get a pass on this. You, you got to serve other people, and it means that it can be messy, it can be humiliating, it can be sacrificial, but you've got to expend the energy to do this. And he's driving home this servant leadership thing that, that, that those that are mature and leaders serve those that are less mature. It's a revolutionary concept, but, but, but I mean, you know, we've forgotten it in this culture. The more mature and the longer we've been at something, the more we expect to be served. Hey, this is my church. I've been here a long time. So I have say, I have pull, I have power. You know, it should go the way I want it to. Or, hey, I'm, uh, I'm older, I've paid my dues. You ever thought that way? I've paid my dues, so it's other people's turns now to, to pull the sled or to do the hard work. I mean, that, but that's so absurd if you think about it. I mean, it'd be like my daughter Ashlyn, who's one. Um, it'd be like me saying to her, yeah, um, it's your turn to do the chores. Um, yeah, I've put in my time, like for a year. It's your turn to change diapers and be mature. You know, what are you, selfish? Like, I mean, it's such a basic principle of life that those that are more mature serve those that are less mature. Right? I mean, you know, teachers, you know, you wouldn't expect like the student to come in and teach you, would you? You're the one that passes it down. And, and, and we, on, on one hand, we get this. On another hand, we completely miss it. And, and because we're weird creatures, right? And so Jesus is like, let me, just, let me just take the most obvious of things and really try and help you guys understand this. In my kingdom, which is reverse of how it goes in normal life, it's upside down, it's paradoxical, okay? In my kingdom... The more mature, serve the less mature. So please get this, right? And then the next thing he says here, he moves along. And this is the verse we want to pick up today. 
In verse 34, he says this, A new command I give you. Love one another. A new command I give you. It's, it's not just, yeah, love is a good thing. It's not, um, it, it's not soft. Jesus, in, in the most urgent, meaning, feel, uh, mean, like packed with meaning moments of his, his ministry, says, I give you a command. Um, this is the set for Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So like, if you pictured Liam Neeson's voice coming out of Aslan the Lion, like roaring at you, I mean, I give you, I can't do it right, but I give you a command. Love one another. Forget everything. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a platitude. This is a, this is a command. Now, the interesting thing here is I've been studying the meaning of words. Just a little kick I've been on lately, like just reflecting on this. And so at the elder meeting a week and a half ago, I actually was talking to the elders about this. I was like, hey guys, we do something really interesting with words. We use words, just a word, to describe a whole set of circumstances, but the word doesn't really fit the reality of the circumstances. And so I was talking to the elders and I said, said, listen, like we have a lot of people in our church that are adopting. Um, Think of that word adoption. It's like, it's adoption. It's not a bad word. No, I mean, I don't know, it's just a word, right? Adoption, big deal. Yeah, it's not for us, maybe for them. It's, yeah, it's, it's just adoption. Do you know what adoption stands for? Adoption stands for a family spending time, energy, and money. In America, it's a lot of money. To go find an orphan who has no family, to bring that orphan into their house, make that orphan a part of their family, and raise that orphan as one of their own. To love and to give equal status and to, to put energy and heart into that, to sacrifice for that orphan. That sounds different, doesn't it? That sounds like a big deal. Like, wow, God would probably actually get excited about that. I mean, that actually sounds like maybe something pretty cool. Adoption. Like, ad you know what I'm saying? Like, adoption just doesn't do it. Uh, the human rights class that, that I co-teach, we had a guy in there this week, this Wednesday, who survived the Holocaust, lives in Bend. And um, craziest story ever. I mean, unbelievable, just listen to him for, for over an hour. And he said something really fascinating. So I'd just gotten done with this whole, like, mind thing about adoption and whatever, words and meanings. And he says in the middle of his talk, he's like, Holocaust. Puh. What is Holocaust? Just stupid word, empty word. He goes, I prefer to say the purposeful mass murder of six million people. And, and what this guy was getting after was the same thing that, that I was wrestling with with the word adoption. And I just immediately sat up and I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. I mean, this, this, he gets it. This word obscures the meaning. The felt, the felt quality of what we're really talking about, the bigness of it, is obscured by the word. Okay? So here's another word for you. 
love. It's a neutered word. It has, it has no power in our society anymore. It is so common. It is so ambiguous. It is so neutered. And Jesus says, I give you this command. Um, Jesus tried all throughout his ministry to do the same thing we're talking about, to take a concept, to take a word, and to try and pack meaning back into it. So he gives this parable of, of the Good Samaritan, and they're like, well, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? And he gives this parable about all the guys that you think are loving because they're spiritual don't really help the guy because it would be serving, going out of their way, being messy, getting dirt underneath their fingernails. And here's this common guy that nobody would think of as important or special or whatever. And this common guy takes time out of his life, energy, money, to love this other individual who's beat up, hurt on the side of the road, goes and puts him up in an inn. And Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. In the Christian world that I grew up in, the last 50 years of our Christian culture, love is uh, treated with suspicion. Evangelism, that's sacred. It's as if Jesus says, I give you a new command. Go evangelize your neighbor. Invite him to a barbecue with false motives so that you can make it look like you love him. So that two months from now, you can go invite him to a comedian that's going to come to your church. Because at the end of the comedy show, there's going to be a, a, a cool little presentation of the gospel. And, and they won't know that. But then you can, because you pretend to love them, they'll come because they trust you to this comedian thing. And then it's evangelism. But, but that's, we, we serve evangelism. That's it. That's the whole ball game. And if you're not evangelizing your neighbor, you're a bad Christian. And a matter of fact, you're just a despicable person. I'm picking on that for a reason because we've done something really, really, really weird. We've rewritten Jesus' words. It's as if Jesus, in the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan, said that after four days of putting this guy that was beat up in this inn, you know, the, the Samaritan guy, the guy that loved, said, here, take this money, take care of this, take care of this guy, nurse him back to health, and it's as, as if we put on the back of that parable. And then after four days, the Good Samaritan came back and finished what he started by evangelizing the poor guy and really loving him, which means sharing the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's, I, I planted a church because it's the number one form of evangelism there is. Statistically, more people come to the Lord in a church plant than any other way. Okay, so I'm not anti-evangelism. I'm pro-scripture. I don't think I get to monkey with the priorities that Jesus set for his people. And we've done something really, really, really weird, and we've rewritten slowly the priorities and the values that Jesus gave to his people, and we act as if Jesus says, I give you a new command. Evangelism. And that's not what he said. And we're going we're gonna to finish this part of so We're going to stop right here, come back to this a little bit later. Um, you, you can hate me now, we'll finish it later, and maybe you'll hate me less. But um, Jesus tried to pack meaning into this. He says, don't just love the people that love you. Love those that don't love you. I want to give you three things if, you t if you're like a note taker. I want to give you three things 
that are in this command, this new command to love, that will help us understand what Jesus is trying to pack into that word. First thing he's doing is he's saying love, I call it love as dogma. Love as dogma, which means you're responsible to it. It's doctrine. I give you a new command. It's right there in scripture. This is doctrine. If you want to know what Jesus' teachings are, his formal teachings, he says, I command you to love. It's doctrine. Do you understand what I mean by that? Love as dogma. It means, here's the word, you're responsible. Number one, we have a responsibility to love. I, uh, I had an interesting experience. I was, um, I was at my house and there was a lot of peace. It's you know, um, interesting experience, right? Um, there was a lot of peace. There was a lot of quiet. And I, I was actually just, I mean, it was this wonderful moment in my house. The, but the baby monitor wasn't on, okay? And then we realized it turned the baby monitor on and, and our daughter Ashlyn had probably been screaming for quite a while and she had herself really worked up. Okay, do you know what, what baby screams do to me? Like, I mean, just into my spine, just tension. It's like a IV of, of stress, like shot right into my core. I mean, it, it really, like, you just get, like, somebody stop that baby from crying, like, ah, right? And the minute that monitor went on, I heard that crying. I was just like, ah, Tamara, do something, like, make the baby stop. Um, it's not always the case. I do um, uh, God hears all the cries. God hears all the cries. Two and a half years ago, we did a human rights series for three weeks. We, we talked a lot about uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking, sex slavery. Little girls that don't know better age 16, age 14, age 13, taken out of poor countries where they can't possibly know better um, because they listen to men who lie to them, take them across international borders, beat, rape, and then keep them under lock and key to service 20 to 30 men a day. Um, And we're inconvenienced by snow. This This happens to the tune of a million people a year. And it comes through Bend, it comes through Portland, it comes through Seattle. It's rampant in, in Asia, in places like India. I got frustrated two weeks ago because my favorite TV show took a week off. Not supposed to do that in the fall. Um, in the fall, it's supposed to be consistent, right? I looked forward to it all day Monday, it wasn't on. It's Lie to Me. You guys watch Lie to Me? It's kind of cool. Um, it's easy for me to get inconvenienced by lie to me. You know why? Because I don't hear the cries. I don't hear the cries. If the baby monitor was on, if those cries, those tears that the girls are shedding where nobody sees, crying in languages that are foreign to where they're being held captive, and nobody hears, nobody cares, nobody is there, if I could hear those cries, lie to me wouldn't mean anything. God hears those cries. And he's saying, I command you to love 
It's doctrine. It's dogma. I'm, I'm commanding it. You are responsible. Not just the people that love you, not just the people in your proximity. You're responsible for the people who are crying. It means you're going to have to serve. It means you with more are going to have to bend down and help those with less. The more mature, the, the, the more well-off are responsible for those who cannot help themselves. In some sense, the essence of the gospel is Christ doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When was the last time any of you absolved yourself from sin? On your own. I forgive me of sin. There's a movie a ways back with Robert Duvall called The Apostle, and he went into like this river, and he like baptized himself as an apostle. It was really weird. Like, there's nobody else around. The guy's baptizing himself. Like, we can't do that for ourselves. Christ did that for us. There's people that, that have needs that cannot do for themselves. And we who have the capability are responsible to go and do for them. We're responsible. That phrase I, I used earlier, the social gospel, it's a way of hiding and saying we're not responsible for love. You know, I don't want to go to the other side of the road and help that guy that's been beat up because it looks a little bit too much like the social gospel. And I don't want, I don't want to get tied up with that. Isn't that what the priest and the Levite did as they walked by that guy? Ah, if I touch blood, I'm ceremonial, ceremonially unclean for like a long time and I got to get to where I'm going and, and I can't get tied up with that messy situation because it it affects my purity. So you got pastors saying, yeah, we can't get caught up in love in the social sectors because we, we might get tied up with the social gospel. So, you know, Jesus would be more excited if we maintained our purity and nobody talked, nobody spread rumors about our church. You know what I mean? Like our, our image was a little bit more untarnished. And, and we, we, we walked on this side of the street. Jesus would be more happy with us if we didn't love. It's cleaner. Forrest Gump has a great scene with a girl, Jenny. They're walking and they go back by her house that she was abused in as a, a child. And she breaks down, runs towards it, and starts throwing her shoes and rocks and everything else at it. And uh, Forrest Gump, you know, in his great, great little way of boiling everything down, says, sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. Adoption. Hmm. I mean, Augustine said, charity is no substitute for justice withheld. Number one, we have a responsibility to love. It's dogma, it's doctrine. Second thing is capacity. We think of love as an emotion. We hide behind that. I don't feel like it. I don't have time for it. I don't have energy for it. It's not an emotion, it's not a feeling. It's a commitment. Listen to 1 John 3 and verse 16. It says this. This is how we know what love is. You want to know what love is? It's a neutered word. We don't, we don't know. This is how we know. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
and when we follow him, we do like he does, and we lay down our lives for, for those that cannot, we, we do for them what they cannot do for themselves, like Christ did. We have the capacity. Jesus wouldn't ask us to do it. God wouldn't call us to do it if we did not have the capacity. I don't care if you don't feel it. When I worked at a Christian summer camp, uh, we had a saying, because we'd like sleep hardly at all, get up at 5.36 in the morning, and there's these kids, and they have this renewable source of energy. It's called sugar. And, and they would just be like high on sugar all the time, and we just didn't feel it. And, and there's this saying we used, fake it till you feel it. You just fake it, because you, you're supposed to do it. And as you start to do it, your, your emotions will come along. And we have the capacity, I don't care what your feelings are, we have the capacity to love. It's an action, not an emotion. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Listen to this. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? If you take what you did not deserve, did not earn from God, but then when somebody who does not deserve or did not earn something from you, when you withhold that from them, you're a hypocrite. There's way too many Christian hypocrites out there that take from God and enjoy this amazing grace. But we're just not in the mood. We're not in the mood to do the same thing. God says we have the capacity, we have the responsibility, we have the capacity. It's not an emotion. You know, if it was an emotion, Jesus wouldn't have said, love your enemies. Right? It's not an emotion. It's a decision. You know, um, we don't have time for this, but it's funny. Uh, do you guys remember, how many of you got that orange, like, stress ball? Or the yellow stress ball. You remember that? We used to give it out in the welcome bags. Okay. For a long time, we had these yellow stress balls, and it said, love your enemies. Right? <laughs> and uh, we gave it in the welcome bags, which are, like, uh, for visitors. And we had a guy shoot us a really nasty note one time after visiting. He had kids, and he was... You know, family guy, whatever. Shot us a real nasty note, so I gave it to Brandon. Hey, Brandon. <laughs> um, and Brandon calls the guy. The guy chews him out on the phone and says, you know, ba 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 ba. And then he he goes to like, you know, the guy's really churchy. Been in church his whole life. Uh, we're not biblical enough. We're not this enough. We're not that enough. And then at the, the like icing on the cake for this guy was to tell Brandon. And then we get the welcome bag, and we're in the car. And we pull out this squish ball. My, my son reads it to me. And it says, love your enemies. This, you know, Antioch squish ball. And then I knew it. Like, you guys are so unbiblical. You put something on that squish ball that's not even in scripture. Brandon was telling me the story. And I was just like, what? It's like, like, this guy's been in church his whole life. And he's like, he's like railing you on not being biblical enough. And he doesn't even know that right there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've been told to love your neighbor but hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies. We're so blind to what Jesus taught about love that we get mad at a squish ball. Um, you have the responsibility. We have the responsibility. We have the capacity to love. We have the accountability built in. We're going to pick up the end of that 
initial story here. Turn to 1 Corinthians if you can. Some of you might have this memorized. 1 Corinthians 13 is pretty famous. It's all about love. We neuter it by using it at weddings. Nobody takes anything serious that happen at weddings, right? Weddings ruin cake for me too. Um, but listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians 13 says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He's saying, if I am like the top of the food chain spiritual, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through me in tongues of angels, if I'm like top of the food chain, but I don't have love, it's, it's like a headache. It's only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. There's a, a thing called love that is its own thing that is so pure in itself. It's, it's you choosing and desiring and wanting and faking it until you feel it and disciplining yourself and working at it and making it your goal not to get a certain body or to work yourself into certain skills like you can just kill anyone at Halo. Like, but you're disciplining yourself to become good at this thing called love that it is what you are, who you are, how you judge yourself, because that thing, if it's not there, makes everything else worthless. So I can evangelize my neighbor, but if I don't have love. See, we've, in, in, in the Baptist church in California I worked in, it was really fascinating what they did. They made love serve evangelism. We love so that we can then get them to say a prayer. I once suggested for a Christmas thing, they were trying to come up with outreach ideas. I said, let's just have a tree lot and say it's for single moms and for widows and those that can't afford it. And we actually offered to go set those trees up for them. And they were like, great idea, great idea, great idea. Okay, so, but then what do we do to make them then come into the church as part of that? Like, how do we finish the deal? And I was like, I don't understand. Like, isn't that good enough? No, no, no. If there's no way to get them into the church and get them saved, then it's worthless. You see, we flip-flopped these things. Love is its own end. You love, you are obeying God's command, Christ's command. If you love, you are doing what's right. It's not love is a, a, a tool in your toolkit to use to serve other purposes. There's accountability to it. We don't love because we don't think it's dogma. We don't think it's doctrine. There's two words. There's orthodoxy, which means right doctrine, and orthopraxy, which means right practice. And we think love is in orthopraxy. It's how you should behave. But it's not as important as the Constitution. Like the governing documents, the orthodoxy of the church. 
And we're going to guard this. We're going to fight over this. We're going to argue about this because this is important. But love is banished to orthopraxy. And I say love is built into orthodoxy. And if we don't think of it as being in orthodoxy, right belief, then we never actually take it serious enough to do it orthopraxy. Does that make sense? So the height of irony for me is when I get emails from pastors trying to argue social justice and they say, you don't have right doctrine because you care about love. And I'm just like, man, you know, when Jesus really worked people over because the community isn't loving people, you know who he goes after? The pastors. You pastors are responsible for your churches and your people to, to guard this. You elders, you shepherds are responsible to make sure that your church gets it, that it's not just about us, that we're not turned in on ourselves. And so when a pastor is arguing with me and saying, look, you care about love, so you must not have correct doctrine, I say, you don't understand orthodoxy. Isn't that why Jesus had to come down to earth? Because the leaders of the church have begun to put love at the bottom of the stack. The shepherds who are supposed to take care of sheep, the more mature who are supposed to take care of the less mature, lost their way. And so Jesus came as the good shepherd to show them what it really looks like to take care of people. See, here's what it boils down to. Um, so responsibility, capacity, capacity, and accountability. And what it boils down to is um, rules. Rules. Uh, the word anarchy is, is Greek. It means anarche. Arche is rule. Um, A-R-C-H-E in the English, you know. It means rule. It's like established rule. It's, it's authority. It's what everyone follows. And when you go against the rule, you're in chaos. You're in anarchy. You get it? We treat love not like a rule. And we don't understand rules. We think that we don't have rules, but we really do. Most of our values, our governing values, uh, we're blind to. So I guarantee you, you have the same drink you order in Starbucks, or at least the same two that you order in Starbucks every time you go. Anyone else? You're following a rule. There's a pattern, there's a rule that you submit to, you follow. It, it's a governing value. It's a value not just that's an emotion, but it's, it's a value that governs your actions. Does that make sense? How many of you plan your week around a television schedule? It's a rule that you've created, that you submit to, that you follow. It's a governing value. Does that make sense? Our problem with love is not that we think it's a bad thing. It's just that it doesn't have any power for us, and we put it at the bottom of our list of values. Do you value love? Yeah. Value it. No one's going to say that they're against love. It'd be like saying that Mother Teresa is an evil person. I mean, no one's going to do it, right? So none of us are against love. We're not against love by intention. Rather, we are not for love because of inaction and indifference. God says care for orphans, and we say adoption. God says speak up for the oppressed and give yourself to the needy, and we say 
love. Jesus says, follow me, and we say, to what church? It's not that those things are bad. It's that they obscure what Christ commanded us to do. Here's, here's the finish of that story, that other part of the verse I talked about earlier. Jesus says, I give you a new command to love. And he says this, by this, by, by love, by, by living it out, by committing to it, by having it as a governing value that orders your steps, organizes your actions and decisions. It says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Am I against evangelism? No. Do I think we should stop proclaiming truth? No, it's, I, I've given my whole life to it. This new service we're starting is, is all about proclaiming and teaching. It, I've given my whole life to it. But I, I want my values to be organized the way that Christ gives them. And Christ gives them this way, and he says, love. It's dogma, it's doctrine, it's a command. You don't have a choice. As I've done for you, I want you to do for others. And if you don't do that, whatever else you do is tainted. It's a headache to me. It's a clanging gong, a banging cymbal. I want you to love. And look, if you could just get that right and not be a hypocrite to the world, in the eyes of the world, like, you know, the evangelism thing would probably be a heck of a lot easier. Like the proclamation, the truth, would probably fall on soil where it could actually... Um, get its roots and begin to grow. Jesus is actually saying love is, is in some sense a thing that begins to make it all the right way. Uh, Lion, the witch, in the wardrobe, Aslan comes back, and as he comes back and breathes, everything goes from winter to spring. It's like love is that thing for Christians. As, as we get love right, it turns kind of from winter to spring, and all of a sudden there's all these options that we can do and things that we can engage in, and it makes it right. And yet we take love and treat it with suspicion and hostility. If you love, you're probably liberal. You probably don't believe in Jesus if you love. Um, it's the social gospel. It's messy. Jesus would be much happier if we avoided it. See, here's the thing, I'll, uh, it's the last thing, I, I, last, I mean, I'm already 20 minutes over or something, but um, here's the thing, love is a commitment, and it's not a, here's where you're going to get frustrated, basically. If you try and make it a, a hour by hour, minute by minute commitment, you're going to fail. We treat it that way. You know, we throw our kids in the car and we go get, you know, bags of groceries and try and take it to friends and things like that. You should do the same thing, you know. Ah, oh, okay, now there's this oppressive law that I have to measure up to. And that kind of law, you will always fail at. Okay? Here's the, um, here's how you make it work. You have to make one decision that affects all the other decisions. I don't decide every day to work at Antioch. I decided that one time. And it governs all of my actions from then on until I decide no longer to work at Antioch. It's my job. It's my identity. It's who I am. It's what I do. I don't have to think about it. 
I just move forward. I made a decision, Tam and I made a decision with our first three kids to have kids. Um, it was a decision that we made that affected all subsequent decisions. You get what I'm saying? It's why this bargain, basement, cheap gospel, red slash through it, I don't care how much of a reprobate and how black your heart is, and I don't care if you plan on staying that way, as long as you say this prayer and say you want cheap grace, fire insurance, whatever, um, you know what I'm talking about? Evangelism where it's just all you got to, I don't care. Just say these words after me. Raise your hand. Come forward. Okay, that kind of evangelism drives me crazy because it inoculates people to the real thing. You want to know what the real thing is? The word repentance literally means turn from this way of life to a different way of life. When Jesus called people, he called them not to like come have lunch with him. He called them to make a decision for the rest of their lives to leave what they were doing and to now come be a part of what he's doing. When I call a man, I call him to come and suffer. When I I call him to, to come and carry his cross, I call him to come and follow me to be with me, to, to do what I'm doing, to, to be done with the old way and to find a new way. So the, the, the cheap grace salvation drives me crazy because it's like getting a little bit of the flu shot, just enough to where you build up antibodies to it. So we give people just a little bit of Christianity, just the cheap grace selfish side, and then if you hold on to right orthodoxy, you can call yourself good. And it doesn't matter if you never love another soul in your life. You know, you got right beliefs and you prayed the prayer. You got your, it's like my kids with their little bottle and blankie, you know. And we never mature beyond that. I got my orthodoxy and I got my, my sinner's prayer. I'm a good Christian. And we never mature. I don't like cheap grace because it inoculates. We never have to realize, you know what, what Christ wanted was not me to raise my hand. He wanted me to turn from the way of of life that I had before him. Even if you've prayed a prayer 10, 20 years ago, if you're still going down a a way of life that you're mapping out, he wants you to turn from that and to go this way. And here's the funny thing. He might take you and put you right back into that office as a missionary, called and sent with the command to love in his name. So I'm not saying he's going to send you to Africa. He might. He sent Dylan and Sherry to Argentina. But he might just send you back to your office and tell you um, it's no longer about the money. It's no longer about the office politics. It's no longer about... I'm I'm sending you there as an ambassador, as as one of mine with a command. You've got marching orders you're to love. Um, You want to get love right? It's one decision. It's, it's a big decision, and I'm not going to like try and pull it out of you right now. But what I really want you to wrestle with is, have you made that decision to give your life, all of it, all in? Not hold anything back behind, but like all of it to God. Take all of it, God. You tell me what to do, I'll say yes, and I'll go do it. And if I don't feel like it, it's okay. I'll fake it till I feel it, and I'll just, that's what prayer becomes. Is not help me on this test, help my right ankle, help my whatever, 
when you're living that life, prayer changes. And it's like, God, I don't feel it today. I'm not happy today. I don't have any joy in my life. I can't go out like this and represent you like this. I can't go into that office because I don't want to love those people today. And we get on our knees and we bury our face in the couch and we wrestle with God in prayer and we say, you've got to do for me what I cannot do for myself. You've got to fill me with some kind of love for these people. You've got to fill me with joy in serving you because everyone else around me is getting their cheap fix on cotton candy pleasure. And sometimes, sometimes God, that really pulls at me. And, and prayer becomes something totally different when you've made that one decision that affects all other decisions. Love is such an ambiguous word. I don't know the right word. The title of this message is just love as dogma. It's like, do it. It's, it's love that you and me here reading scripture are supposed to say yes to. It's a lifelong calling. It's obedience. It's following Christ. So somehow, some way, we've got to find the right meaning. It's adopting orphans into a family, embracing them like your own children, and raising them sacrificially. It's not adoption. So I don't know what you'd call this. I call it Christianity. Because Christianity literally was the second name that replaced the first name. Do you, do you know what Christians were first called? Followers of the way. I got shorthand, Christianity. So maybe the word we need to change isn't love, but Christianity. It's not having right doctrine, the little pink blankie with the little thing in the middle that squeaks, and the water bottle saying, I'm a Christian. It's actually accepting the mantle of responsibility, knowing that you have the capacity, knowing that there's accountability there for you to actually follow and do what Jesus did to love others as a lifestyle. Followers. Followers of the way. That's Christianity. That's what this is all about. It's about turning on the monitor and hearing the cries of the oppressed and realizing, boy, we've got some work to do. Bend, Oregon, we've got some work to do. Antioch Church, we've got some work to do. Those of you that are already doing it with me and, and others and doing it together, guess what? That's really cool, but we still got some work to do. Because um, God hears those cries when we go to sleep at night in silence. And I think he wants us to have his same heart, his same ears, same compassion and the same desire to do something about it. Let's pray, Father. I do not have within me the knowledge of how to organize a church, develop a strategy, and motivate a group of people to love like Christ loved. I do not have that capacity. The elders don't have the capacity. Only you have the ability to change human hearts. Only you have the ability to somehow supernaturally organize, create, pull together, ignite a movement of love. It's not 
atheological, but that is the heart of theology and right teaching and right doctrine and right action. And so, Father, we're helpless, and I just call on you this morning, if it's your desire, if you would so choose, that individuals that are sitting there right now wrestling in prayer, somehow deep in their gut, in their soul, desiring to give everything over to you, I just pray that you would just flip that switch, make it happen. Catalyze those decisions, baptize those decisions, help those people really get over that hump, let go of everything that's vanity, that's silliness, and really just give it all over to you, trusting, trusting that you'll take care of them. That's what faith is. So Father, I just pray somehow, Take this church and do something with it beyond what any of us could do ourselves, imagine ourselves, believe ourselves. Let it be something that would only bring you glory because to even the outside observer, it is not of us. Don't try and do it with the big structures, Father. We know you're going to do it with individual hearts. And so I just pray that the conversation is with individuals. And then we just get to see the fruit of what your Holy Spirit is doing in this church in Christ's name.